Lisa and thank you for being here and uh, as usual thank you for Equiton to Equiton actually for kind of hosting and giving us the possibility to share something that is um, close to our heart and something that is uh, important in the field of architecture so um, and creating Architalk that is this uh, informal chat to talk about uh, different theme and subjects around design and the project. So Lisa is from um, Eyeball uh, Architects, so maybe you can please give us a little bit of a background about yourself. Awesome, so um, I'm a senior associate with Eyeball Architects, um, working up in the business studio, and for the last few years I've been specifically concentrating on the education sector. My background previously was actually involved in a lot of commercial and retail projects, a lot of tertiary and university um, aspects, but now, just more recently for the last two to three years, I've been working a lot in the government sector and in the more primary and secondary state schooling sector as well. But the subject, the topic you say it's close to your heart, you would like yes. to talk about is uh, sustainability, right? And Correct, exactly. You so we work in certain specific sustainable project or is kind of a, in the middle of your you know, development that you are starting yeah. to use it? Or? Uh, it's interesting actually because I've been, uh, I can't say that it's a specific area that I have specialised in per se, but what I've got to admit is what I feel that just by doing good common sense design and also having a thorough engagement process and collaboration process with your old clients, you should actually be able to um, achieve some highly sustainable buildings. And I don't think it should be something that should be set apart. I think it should be part of the normal course of what you do every day. I've got a couple of examples that I can quickly run through, which will show that, for instance, in some aspects of our projects, we didn't actually set them out to be sustainable projects per se. But they ended up um, being recognised because of like their adaptability, the flexibility. In one instance, I worked on a university project down in Bathurst with my previous firm, Thompson Edsett. And that one we actually didn't even consider to be a highly sustainable building. But through our process and I guess our rigour of the design, it ended up actually being submitted for the Institute of Wars and actually took out one of the top prizes for sustainability itself. And to me, it was the case of that was just doing the appropriate process throughout the design and you get a really good outcome. My question is, how do we make our built environment truly sustainable? And that's why I wanted to touch on three main main core areas that I believe that if you focus on during the design process, invariably you should actually end up with being achieving a design that actually is actually sustainable, not just say from a technical aspect, but from a cultural and social aspect as well. When we talk about sustainable buildings, most of the architects and engineers, the systems, the selection of materials and so on, but in fact it's actually a lot more than that to make sure a building is as adaptable and flexible and has a long-term use in life that's way past, say, the initial, say, 10, 15 years your, your brief might be focusing on. As I mentioned, there are three main aspects. The technical aspects. Second one I think is really important is the flexibility and adaptability of the building itself. So you might be given an initial brief, but you want to make sure that that building can adapt and change as the users might be needing to um, adjust or as work types might evolve, especially with, for instance, what we've had with the pandemic and COVID at the moment, our work practices are dynamically different. Right now will be very different to how we had done that, say, 18 months, two years ago. So as a result, 
we need to consider how our spaces evolve and change without having to have a huge amount of outlay and expense with doing refurbishments and retrofitting. And then the final one, which I think is one of the most critical aspects, is the social sustainability. And this focuses on cultural outcomes. And a lot of the work that we do with the government um, with some of the design guidelines that we've been working through, and I quickly can run through one of the projects we worked on called the FlexiSpace project, where through a lot of engagement it became extremely clear that having co-creation and active involvement of your local community is absolutely essential for your building designs and your projects to have that longevity working through them. So I'll quickly go on. Of course, because if it's not a place that people will use or it's close to the way of using the space of the community, it will be a, an area that is not lived. Right. Well, that's the one thing we found, that if you didn't actually have that engagement and ownership of the building by the actual users um, and the local community, then, for instance, a lot of the success of the project is usually lessened. So quickly running through some of the technical aspects, of course, yeah. that we should be considering which I feel is something that should be a standard process whether it's a small refurbishment project or a greenfield site is number one we have to be looking at obviously how can our building form reduce the actual energy use so we want to have a sustainable building that's actually forming extremely efficiently um, maximizing the building fabric to its absolute best ability to be able to maintain thermal regulation within the thermal environment you want to make sure that your light selections, your water feeding fixtures and so on, everything is as sustainable as it possibly can as far as minimising that footprint that we have on the earth. Now, one of the um, recent actually GLEAM forums that Hable regularly undertakes is we actually had Annie Tennant and Paul Stoller talking about sustainability. And Paul was actually mentioning the main things that we should be looking at, zero emissions and zero pollutants. So how can we actually minimise what we're actually giving back out into the environment after the project is finally built. So obviously basic things such as eliminate your fossil fuel use, make sure that you're using low resistance and low VOC type. Where possible, develop on-site renewables, whether it be through solar PVC panels and so on, or depending on the climate, you might be looking at geothermal. And obviously, in the worst case scenario, some might actually be looking at purchasing renewable power or even just doing offsets with your emissions targets. And one of the aspects I think we all forget about is whether or not you're actually trying to reduce energy costs. The basic element of living in a building environment, as humans, we want to actually feel comfortable. We want to have the most efficient and perfect environment that actually maximises our well-being. And a lot of the research that we've been doing, especially with the government performance of students and performance and abilities for people to study, is we find that, for instance, if you've got a building that has good ventilation with natural light, yeah. actually thermally balanced as well, then you'll actually have a much better performance of the individual when they're actually working or living within that space. And one of the things that we often look at, which we often forget about, is we adapt and we change and we change on a daily basis. So we also have to consider that we have natural biorhythms that regulate the human body and therefore you should also be considering how does your physical building help respond or actually balance or interact with your human body as it's chopping and changing as well. So you can see here on the graph on the left-hand side, 
you've actually got, say, a 24-hour cycle. So you get sleepy perhaps in the late afternoon and then you have melatonin levels or serotonin levels like peak and trough depending what time of day it is. And that can naturally affect how you feel whilst you're actually physically sitting in an environment. So if you've got circadian-type lighting that can actually help balance out how you're working in this space, then little, little elements like that we find is actually really beneficial too. I remember that obviously you're talking about light specifically. I remember ages ago that an Italian comp- company called Artemide or Artemide, like you say here, mm. they've been doing a lot of studies on creating lights that also for offices or spaces where uh, you don't have the possibility to have natural light can recreate exactly steps of the day and the same type of color light to exactly have the same benefit onto your uh, bodies and then create absolutely better relaxations uh, and uh, better you know digestion or uh, working for functions of your body do you have a team that have other expertise that helps Uh, absolutely so when we were working in the flexi space design guidelines with the government there was that was highly driven through research so we actually had a couple of specialist education researchers working with us like dr julia we liaise with many 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 of the other principals who are working at the cold face and the students and teachers at the cold face of the facilities we were looking at but also we have to rely on our specialist engineers. So we, I've got a couple of amazing engineers that I work with that are pretty much leading edge when it comes to sustainability and also considering wellness and general health and well-being in the built environment too as well. So when you're working with this, this wider group of team members, you're actually sort of always pushing the boundaries a little bit, trying to make it that one little bit better. So whether it be selection of lighting, making sure your mechanical ventilation systems always ensure a high quality of natural air and also internal air quality flows itself, making sure that, for instance, the buildings are shielded appropriately in work areas from electromagnetic resonance imaging and so on. The noise, obviously, is a, is a consideration too as well. So what insulation materials you use actually is the selection of them to make sure that the selection of the insulation is sustainable. But also it's one of the biggest issues with the connection with the outdoor landscapes, the indoor-outdoor connection, time and time again, no matter how much research we do, that obviously people like to see greenery. And that's where there's a lot of work in the field of neuroscience so if you end up, say, if you're running a hospital, beds in hospitals are money. And if you can get your patients out of the hospitals as quickly as you possibly can by increasing the time for their improvement and their, their recovery, and as a result, you'll find a lot of healthcare aspects that are actually really trying to put connection with external landscapes and having the greenery. And there should be no difference for schools or or any other building at all. There's so much evidence that's proving that it's beneficial for air quality, beneficial for productivity, beneficial for general health and um, emotional well-being, we should just be doing it. Yeah, yeah, and it's actually very interesting, this uh, uh, background research that they are, because obviously they connect and they uh, they give more purpose to Mm. trying to design, you know, a building that uh, has all these elements in mind. And this is one thing I wanted to mention. It doesn't have to be a project that you consider a sustainable building project. Like, for instance, we've done projects like the Glenmore State High School Flexi Space, which is a small little refurbishment of a 
an existing building where we actually applied these principles to it. So we looked at early engagement and goal setting with the client about the sustainable outcomes that we were hoping to achieve. We worked closely with our our white engineers and landscape architects to make sure that we could do and push the boundaries as best we could, services and building systems and landscaping that help support the sustainable outcomes. There wasn't actually a lot of opportunity for some external landscapes other than a little breakout space adjacent to the classroom. And we had actually quite a few indoor plants and so on. If you can try to achieve more landscaping, and you should be designing from first-based principles. So whether it's a small project like Lemore, which is like a total project budget of about two hundred fifty dollars to $300,000, or like the Queensland Academy of Science, Maths and Technology. So we call that POSMAT. So that was a $33 million project. So the second point I think we could run through quickly is technical aspects of one element. The second aspect is obviously flexibility and adaptability. It's no good designing a building or building a project that, for instance, yes, it might meet the brief requirements of the client at that time, but perhaps within five years, the change management shift within the way they operate. And as a result, you have to be gutting the whole building and repurposing it completely. And then every single time you have to do construction, that's a physical cost to the environment. So an example of, say, a building that will be working really hard is um, in Brisbane office, we worked on the Victorian Pride Centre, which is a national competition. So we were one of the finalist entries here. So this is a theoretical project, but it still explains and shows a project where it has to work really hard and has to make sure that it's working, say, 24 hours a day with multiple uses. So this was basically a project that was being designed as the headquarters for the Victorian Pride Centre. It had multiple functionalities from a large community resource facility with um, lecturers and theatres to commercial office spaces for the Victorian Pride Centre themselves to a small commercial shop to a medical health and testing laboratory at the back, as well as um, um, professional medical offices as well, including parking for staff and visitors and obviously appliance equipment. So as an example, this is a cross-section coming through the building. You've got down in the bottom level, obviously, a car park and plant facilities. The blue level here is actually, um, it was almost, it was a library. It was some of the community facilities, some of the retail precincts. The level one was actually all your commercial offices and uh, professional offices and suites. And up on the top floor, we had a functional um, lecturette theatre that could also dovetail because it had incredible views of Melbourne that could also be operating 24-7. So this is a classic example that this building was designed to be highly adaptable, highly utilised, utilised not just, say, from the hours of 9 to 5, but actually utilised and working and operational 24 hours a day. That is important, again, for, as you say, sustainability, because if you think about it, uh, I don't know, now it comes to my mind, uh, cinema uh, is used only a certain time of the day and the rest of this time is uh, a new space and uh, it's you know is existing is a building it does have cost of uh, probably eating uh, you know uh, air conditioning or stuff or maintenance simply maintenance of the building for not being used 100% of the time I'm curious seeing how 2020 has been like a 
specific here of adaptability <laughs> and flexibility. Mm. Obviously, there is a you know lovely space, uh, not the car park, but afterwards where you have uh, you know connectivity and connection and library and staying together space, and then the top floor where exactly there is the uh, auditorium or the theater where again mm. we get together the terrace. I can see people on the terrace outside with a beautiful view and the top floor. Is there a new way to design now due to the virus? It's something that a lot of our clients, especially in the tertiary sector, are grappling with. If you have an asset that's sitting idle for a large proportion of the day, then for instance, that's physically costing you money. And it's an opportunity that, for instance, I think we need to make our buildings work a lot harder. So that, for instance, when we design something, we should be thinking of this full interaction of the building over a 24-hour period not to say for the operational hours that they, the clients might be coming to, to us with their original brief. So classic example here of the similar sort of thing is when we do designing of schools, school buildings, for instance. Again, this is an example of the Flexi Space project, a small little project. Ultimately, it had the large area that, for instance, the clients were asking us and briefed um, multiple functionalities and uses. And with our base plan, we were saying that, for instance, depending on the functional use that each school might be wanting to do, there are multiple opportunities and ways for them to break up these spaces, still have them functioning and working, but in slightly different ways. And an example I think I did mention previously, the Charles University project. So I have to make sure that people are aware that this is not a Hable project. This was a project done by Thompson Adset. The most sustainable building is one that you don't have to build. If you can try to refurbish an existing facility or refurbish an existing building, yes, it might cost you a little bit more. It might be a much more difficult project as far as detailing and a lot of site work. But ultimately, it's less footprint and less effect on the actual environment. So this project is an example of that. And then what we ended up doing ourselves is we actually did our own internal checks against the Green Star um, rating tool. And as a result, again, we didn't try to set out to have the building highly sustainable, but it ended up actually being nominated in many of the industry awards in that category. And again, it was purely because of the process we went through. Um, that, of course, there are codes to follow, but then you mm. say you opened up to most holistic and uh, realistic and holistic way of uh, really um, adapting and finding the sustainable points. Yeah, and that's yeah, absolutely. As I mentioned, the Glean Forum that Hable runs, um, we recently had Antenna talking through, um, through us about the Barangaroo development down in Sydney, and she undertook a highly engaged process with Indigenous community members and elders and really sought to make that development highly focused on the local community. And that's the one thing I think, for instance, a lot of architects, perhaps because of timeframes and also because of client drivers, we often don't get to do this as thoroughly as we most probably should. So one thing I do find also when we're working with the government, especially they're highly focused and highly, well, not just highly focused, but highly committed to making sure that sustainable outcomes from a social and cultural aspect are actually achieved. So the one thing that we always have to do is, um, and this is the top photo is me just working with the Interpolis State High School stakeholders and students where we were talking about design outcomes and wanting to talk to local community members it's absolutely imperative that you can actually talk to local Indigenous elders about the cultural heritage of the site, 
and making sure that it's authentic and it's not just some superficial take on things. To refer back to Annie Tennant's comments when she was discussing it at the Glean Forum, some of these points I've listed are, are key items which, in fact, I think you should be doing for all projects, not just for sustainable projects. We often leave that perhaps too late in, in the piece, but you really need that engagement up front and in the initial concept phase if you can. Equal participation, so you have to recognise some participants don't work well in large groups. Squeeze all this information out of every individual you possibly can and just remembering that each person has a valid viewpoint. So any question has to be deeply listened to and considered, but you've also got to consider, obviously for this building our design project to be successful, you've got to have engagement with the local community. So you've got to make sure that your facility or your designs are giving back just to, to the broader community, just say the individual or the one particular client brief as well. Classic example that when you're looking at, I consider sustainable buildings, this is why I, I really wish more people considered it this way. It should be done undertaken in a holistic approach. So you shouldn't be trying to say, well, this project is sustainable outcomes and this project doesn't because my client hasn't asked for it. I think that's ridiculous. We should be trying to manage and make sure that the materials and finishes are obviously um, providing as, as minimal emissions and pollutants as we possibly can, engaging with our clients. We should be looking at, for instance, the resilience and ability for the building to be able to adapt and change. We want it to be safe and healthy. So we've got to be considering the personal well-being of the individuals working and using this space. We've got to keep the affordable aspects. So the affordability isn't necessarily just can you make the building cheap, but what's going to be affordable for the building long term with the maintenance schedules, the cost life payback period. And of course, the one thing that, for instance, again, Annie Tennant did incredibly well on the Barangaroo development was making sure that your projects were highly engaged with your like your Indigenous um, elders, understanding the Indigenous ecosystem, understanding the true history and culture of the site that you actually might be doing the project on. And, of course, finally, making sure it's highly connected in all aspects. Yeah. And, in fact, Barangaroo really, I think, succeeded in all of these points because... It's- oh, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. And, that I means they've taken as far as, like, the quality and selection of artwork for the facilities, the engagement. It's just incredible. So the process that they have been able to achieve. But at the same time, though, I think this is something, as, as a driver, all architects should be doing on all all projects. Yes. And uh, and almost I'm very fascinated about this, of the last point you underlined, the social sustainability, I think is a very important point. I don't know because I'm maybe not so knowledgeable in this, but I know that there are the star rating and the green rating and all of this, but is there a government design regulation on social sustainability or is something that each practice have to open up for and practice by practice or there is a regulation on that as well? I'm not aware of any particular regulations at the moment. I do understand that most clients, especially if you're working in the government sector, have key drivers. So for instance, when you're given the brief, you'll actually be given pretty clear outcomes of what they're trying to achieve. There are definitely government requirements and policies regarding selection of materials, use of Indigenous head contractors, 
and so on. And a lot of this hindering your process you find actually does focus on that as well. So there's a definite shift and push towards it, but is there actually a rating that says that, for instance, this building is culturally and socially sustainable? No. I think it's going to start to get quite a lot of traction, which is actually a wellness registrar and also a rating system and tool for your buildings. And that focuses on magnetic resonance imaging, electro resonance across the sites, air quality, organic compounds and emissions from the facilities. So I think that's something that perhaps as a tool could definitely be used more regularly than it currently is. Very fascinating, very interesting and it's uh, something that none before talked about it and so I think mm. it's, um, thank you for sharing you know, oh, good. knowledge and uh, uh, your time and uh, thank you.